so that's, that's just, that would be disturbing of the day. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that we can be here. Lord, thank you even more that you are here with us and that you are the one who speaks to us, that you are the one who has given us your word. Lord, I pray that now as, as we explore what we have heard already, that you would give us open hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning, not I. Amen. In 1959, the French, who do a whole bunch of wacky things, put into... Nobody French here, is there? No French heritage? Good. The wacky things the French do. Um, 1959, uh, Charles de Gaulle set in place one of the weirdest laws I I can fathom. There was this big accident, a dam burst, killing hundreds of people, one of whom was a bloke engaged to be married within a few weeks or months. And his fiancée went to the government and said, I want to marry my man. And so Charles de Gaulle said, right, we'll put in the law, you may marry your dead fiancée. Apparently something which still happens quite often. I've got a reference of a lady in 2004 who married her fiancée who had been dead 17 months. Only the French. Or is it? (laughs) This morning um, we we are continuing on our adventure through Paul's letter to the church at at Colossae. Remember, it's a small backwards town with a new church full of new Christians. And and last week, and, and in fact all the way up to now, last week especially, Paul has been reminding us just how wonderful thing, a thing it is for us to be Christians. Remember last week in, in that brilliant passage, chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, uh, Paul said, Brothers and sisters, continue to live in Christ just as you received Him because He's done so much for you. He's saved you. He's rescued you. He set you free. He's, verse 15, triumphed over the powers and authorities of this world. What a wonderful thing it is, says Paul. What a wonderful thing it is to know Jesus and to know that Jesus is for us. And to know that we have everything we need because of His death and His resurrection. And today as we we move into into our our passage of today and, and through the rest of the book, Paul wants to explore with us how that actually works out in practice. He wants to explore with us what our new life in Christ looks like here and now and today. He wants to warn us against throwing the treasure of Christ to the pigs. He wants to warn us against lapsing into thinking that Jesus maybe just isn't enough. And look at at, at chapter 2, verse 16, how he continues on from where he left off last week. Uh, Last week, Jesus has triumphed. He has uh, triumphed over the powers and authorities. He has um, 
made a public spectacle over them. And so then, verse 16, the NIV says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. It's an interesting list that, uh, because when I read it, it's, it seems to me like Paul is, is really going on about a whole bunch of Jewish laws. I mean, the kosher laws that, that say you, you are allowed to eat this and you aren't allowed to eat this and you may not drink there and you may drink there and, and the new moon celebrations and, and, and all of those things are, are Jewish holy days. They, their calendar basically works around the lunar cycle. Uh, the Sabbath day, it's obviously the Sabbath is a Jewish thing. I think what Paul is doing as he writes this verse to the Colossian church is he's, he's telling them, don't let anybody judge you with regard to how Jewish you are. I mean, the things he lists in verse 16 are the, are the things which set the Jews apart from the rest of the world. You knew if somebody was a Jew because they didn't eat bacon with their breakfast. I presume the others did. Anyone with a right mind eats bacon with breakfast. <laughs> these things that Paul lists, these are the things which, which historically prove that you were one of God's people. But then Paul comes and he writes to the Colossian church and he says, nobody has any right to judge how Christian you are according to how Jewish your life is. I mean, back in the early days, this was a real problem for the church. If you read through the New Testament, uh, right from about halfway through Acts, uh, you see the same problem coming again and again and again. But basically, you have these Jewish troublemakers, Jewish Christians maybe, coming into new churches and, and telling them that, that if they really want to be saved, if, if they really want to be part of God's family, then they have to be Jewish first then they have to keep all the Jewish laws and they have to tick this off and tick that off and they have to not eat that and not drink that. They have to go to Sabbath every day. Well, every Sabbath. I mean, basically, these, these Jewish troublemakers, says Paul, had the temerity and the audacity to go to these new Christian churches with a list of rules in their hand to take score and to judge who was and who wasn't really one of God's people. And Paul writes and he says, don't let anyone judge you like that, my brothers and my sisters, because he says in verse 17, that scorecard which they're bringing into your churches is, it's defunct, it's a shadow, it's, uh, one of my favorite words, it's ephemeral, it's, 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 it's not real. It's out of date. I mean, look at verse 17. Uh, I think what Paul is saying is that, yes, there was a time for these rules. God gave them to His people long ago, but they were just looking forward to Jesus. And now Jesus has come and, and all these things which they're trying to throw on you, they've, they've gone past their use-by date. Imagine if you would 
that one day you get stranded on an island in the middle of the Pacific. And for 10 years you're stuck there eating insects. I love Bear Grylls. Good show. Man versus wild. He's a Christian. I'm allowed to say that. 10 years you eat insects. And then one day you see a ship on the horizon and you manage to signal them and they come and they rescue you. And you get on that ship and you sit down in their dining room, 10 years eating insects. And the chefs bring you this, this beautiful, medium, rare pepper steak. And they put it down in front of you. And you say, take it away! Insects are what man must eat. How dare you eat anything but insects? Well, that's the kind of thing that Paul is speaking about here. I mean, he said last week, Jesus came and he set us free from the law. We've been rescued and yet these people come to the church and they say, no, you have to live in the old ways. The way of rules and regulations. And if you don't do that, you won't be saved. Now you're probably sitting there saying, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember when last we had a Jewish troublemaker walk into our church and measure us up against how Jewish we were. Anybody eaten any bacon recently? Oh, tick, tick. Cross, cross. But you know, I do think that Paul's warning to us in these two verses, verses 16 and 17, it's just as relevant today as it was back then. Because you know, there are still people who would come to you, would come to the church and would try to measure us up against some rules, some standards, their their own spiritual scorecards. I'm ashamed to admit that when I was very young, I was one of those people. Um, I love my music. I love all sorts of music. But but when I was probably upper upper primary school, I, I don't know how, but somehow I got it into my head that if you didn't listen to classical music, you were damned to hell. And I'm embarrassed to say that, but more than once, I went off at my parents and my siblings for their unchristian behavior and their lack of spirituality, listening to all these so-called Christian rock artists. I have grown up. I love my rock. I still love my classical too. I said, if you don't follow my rules, you're not saved. One of the things Paul specifically mentions in verse 16 is is this idea of keeping the Sabbath day. You remember all the fuss there was a few years back about parents daring to let their kids play sport on a Sunday. Or daring to work on a Sunday. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for setting aside a day to worship the Lord. I, I think it's good and it's right and it's proper, but our salvation doesn't depend on that. 
I can't go and say, well, you weren't at church seven times in a row, you're going to hell. It doesn't work like that. Some of the older folks would remember the, the good Baptist rules against dancing. Real Christians don't. Maybe some of the other rules we've got is, well, if you want to be saved, you have to come to church regularly. You have to go to as many things during the week as possible. In, in some church traditions, if you don't attend communion uh, two times in a row, they send the elder to your house to speak with you and get you back on the right path before you are lost. And says Paul, writing to us, he says, no. Nobody has the right to judge you. We have but one judge. And as we saw last week, that one judge of ours is the one that took the law and its rules and its opposition to us and he nailed it to the cross and he set us free from it and he said, those things no longer have control over you. You have everything you need in Christ. No ticking off of the rules is going to save you anymore. And Paul goes on in in verses 18 and verse 19 and he he warns us against allowing anyone to come and disqualify us for the prize. In other words, Paul says, don't let anyone come in and tell you that you're not good enough to be saved. Don't let anyone come in and tell you that you're not worthy of God's time and effort. Don't let anyone come and tell you that you're not spiritual enough to get into heaven. Don't let anyone come and rob you of the gift that is yours in Christ. And we're told that these people that that would do this are, are, are people who delight in false humility. You know the kind of people that want everyone to know just how humble they are. Have you ever met people like that? There's a big nod there. If if you meet somebody like that, they're not nice people to be around. Their their humbleness is the kind that looks down their nose at you and says, I am so humble and you are not. They're the kind of people that can accidentally on purpose Let's slip how humble they are. It's a strange mix of being incredibly proud and being incredibly humble. Or as Paul puts it, having a puffed up mind, having an overinflated ego. He goes on, says Paul, people like this delight in worshipping angels, they they go into the greatest of details about the things that they've seen. I mean, what Paul is describing in verses um, 18 and 19 is, is somebody who is just so caught up with, with the idea of mystical experiences. I mean, they think of themselves as, well, they're on a, on a higher plane than the rest of us. The things that they've seen, the, 
the things that they've experienced that, that the rest of us lowly ones have never even heard of. Listen to how God describes this kind of person in Jeremiah 23. I'm going to give you the, the New Living Translation. Jeremiah 23:25. God says, I have heard these prophets say, Listen to me, I dream. I had a dream from God last night. And then they proceed to tell lies in my name, says God. By telling these false dreams, they're trying to get my people to forget me. See, what Paul is warning us about in these two verses, 18 and 19, he's warning us about allowing people to move the goalposts. People who tell us that if we're not as spiritual as them, or not as disciplined as them, or as not, if we haven't done the same things that they've done, then we're not saved. Over the last few years, there have been quite a few books that have come out like this. Uh, some of you might even have read um, uh, Chew Thomas's Heaven is So Real. Listen to how she describes her book. I'm glad you threw it away. I was going to tell you to if you hadn't. <laughs> Listen to what she says. Heaven is so real is our Lord Jesus' end time book. He only used my body to write this book. He wants all believers and, on, and all unbelievers to read it and prepare for his coming. He said he's letting people know what it takes to enter his kingdom through this book. Jesus said, she says, he is letting people know what it takes to enter his kingdom through this book. Can you hear what she's saying? (laughs) She's had these visions of what she thinks heaven is like. Pretty unpleasant visions, actually. Demonic visions. And she has the temerity to say that if you don't subscribe to what I think is true, you will not know how to be in God's kingdom. Exactly as you said, as if Jesus hadn't provided all that we need. Another example, speaking in tongues. People who say you're not saved unless you experience this particular gift. People say, unless you match us in our spirituality and our disciplines and our styles, you're wasting your time. Some of you might have heard about the very interesting experience that we had over the Easter weekend. Um, It was a great service. Pam led for the first time. Um, And we had some some visitors. And, And as we went out for coffee and tea, the person on welcome noticed that that one of the couples that was visiting was rushing out very quickly. And so he went and he said, don't you want to come and join us for a cup of tea, a cup of coffee? And they turned around and they said, basically, we would never eat with people like you. You are heretics and you are not Christian. Because A, some people raised their hands while we were singing. 
and B, you had, you had the audacity to have a female worship leader. I, I, I don't know them, so I don't want to jump down their throats too much, but in effect, they were saying, you are not worthy of us because you are not as spiritually discerning as us. Because you don't tick all the boxes on our spiritual scorecard. But Paul's point in verse 19 is that it is that sort of person. And, and again, I don't know them, I don't know where they are at. It is that sort of person, says Paul, who is in danger of being disqualified, not us. Because what matters is being connected to the head. Once you lose sight of that and start insisting upon rules and regulations and your own scorecard, you've lost it. Growth comes from God. Says Paul, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. And finally, he sums it up in verses 20 to 23 and he says, Brothers and sisters, don't live as if you were still enslaved to your old life. Listen to what he says. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Says Paul, you've been set free from laws which would bind you, from ideas which would enslave you. Christ has done it. He has triumphed over the powers and the authorities of, of the heavenly realms and then you would turn around and allow somebody else to entrap you in new rules. And you know, it is easy to, to slip into thinking that rules are good. And my personality, I, I'm a legalist at heart. I'm working on it. Because, you know, rules and regulations make us feel comfortable. It's like putting blinkers, I think it's blinkers, on a horse. They give us this narrow vision. The path ahead looks straight. There's nothing at the side to distract us. Paul says in verse 23, they seem wise. But, says Paul, to be honest, they don't actually do anything. They're worthless. It's not like you're going to get saved by following the rules. You're saved already in Christ. I I like how the New Living Translation puts it. I think that's what Alison read. These rules, says Paul, may seem wise because they require strong devotion. Don't we respect people who, who are devoted and orderly? Says Paul, these rules may seem wise because they require pious self denial. Doesn't it look good when you see monks who deny themselves all for their religion? Says Paul, these rules may seem wise because they require severe bodily discipline. 
but they provide, says Paul, no help in conquering a person's evil desires. I mean, that's why Jesus came. He came because we can't help ourselves, because no amount of rules save us. So why would we even think to try to live like that again? It's like somebody gives you an aeroplane ticket to London, you put it in your pocket, and then you get in the water and you start swimming. I'm not a good swimmer. I'd drown about 50 meters out. None of us would make it. You know, it's like that law in France allowing people to marry their dead fiancé. Why would you dedicate your life to the lifeless? We have been given all we need in Christ. Why allow ourselves to be enslaved once more to that to which we have died? In Christ you have all you need. In Christ the fullness of God. In Christ freedom. In Christ life. Remember